Good morning, church. This we know. Our God is alive. He loves us. He is worthy of worship. He is worthy of your time. He's worthy to lead this church. And he's worthy of this gathering. And so we come to study the revelation of him this morning. You know, church, I don't really get down in the floor a whole lot at my house. I don't crawl around on the floor a whole lot. That's shocking for many of you. I sit at the table. I sit on the couch. When it's time to go to bed, I get into the bed. But if you didn't know, in eight weeks, my wife is about to have our first daughter. And I can tell you that when she comes, I'm going to be down in the floor. And my mission in life is going to make myself look like an idiot so that I can just see her smile. I'm so excited to meet her, and I'm so excited to know her and for her to know her father. And did you know that the Bible is God getting down on the floor and playing with his children? That's kind of a hard thing for us to recognize, because this Bible is deep. This book is hard to understand, but did you know that God could have written a book that was harder to understand? And every word on this page is condescension. It's God making himself known to us in a way that we can understand. And so when we come to his word as a gathered community of faith, what we're doing is saying, Lord, let's play. Lord, I want to know you. And the father gets down in the floor and he will play with his children because he wants us to know who he is. And church, we have got to cherish every moment with this word because time in this word is time with our father. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, continuing in our series. Um, Through Ephesians, the title is The Gospel Changes Everything. And I believe today, more than any other day, that title for the series is fitting for this message because what Paul does in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 is he explains the gospel and he gives us a before and after picture. This is a different explanation that Paul gives us in Ephesians 1. If you remember, Paul is teaching us that the work of the gospel is a Trinitarian work. And so chapter 1, God just kind of, or Paul zooms out and he gives us this incredible picture of who God is. Um, Before the foundation of the world, the Father predestined us for adoption into his family. He sent the Son, and he has sealed us in the Holy Spirit for eternity. It was this big view of God and of time and everything else. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he gets very, very personal, and he talks about the power of the gospel for our lives. Notice, we'll read in a minute, but it just says, Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead. In this passage, y'all, we're going to see incredible contrast a before and after picture. Now, we all love a good before and after picture, right? When can you think of seeing a before and after picture? The two things that came to my mind was HGTV, right, when we see a home renovation, or if you're watching an advertisement about a dieting service, like Weight Watchers or something, right? You see a person, um, and this is where they were before they started their goal, and then we see them complete their goal. And what is the purpose of a before and after picture? The purpose of the before is to give us a reference point to fully understand the after, because we recognize the extent of the work if we see the before. True story, Olivia did not know I was using this example about before and afters, but she always has this thing whenever we're hanging out that she just wants to go through my phone and look at my pictures. Um, And I don't know why, I think she gets tired of her phone, she wants to play on mine, and then she gets my phone, she goes through my pictures, and she complains about my pictures the whole time. She's like, this is a license plate, this is a receipt, you have no good pictures, you know? Um, 
And one of the things I probably am better at about taking pictures than she is, she's the best one, right? She's better at taking pictures when we're out or, you know, we're at a bridge or a lookout or whatever. But um, I take pictures of the house, you know, hey, this is broken or, or we put our furniture in, this is what looks good. And she said to me, she said, I wish before we moved in, we had, would have taken more before pictures. Because when people come over, we can't show them fully what we've done. We can tell them about some of the things we've done, but they don't have that point of reference. Paul's going to tell us our before. Before is important because it shows us the extent of the work. And um, we have to sit in the before when we look at the power of the gospel. And that's uncomfortable for so many of us, but it, but it is important for us to do. So we read our passage, looking at the power of the gospel, what Paul tells us in our before and our after. Let's read Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead, in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, and for the revelation of yourself, Father, that you are a good Father who wants his children to know him. So, Father, I pray, Lord, as we construct this before and after picture of what you have done for humanity, Father, I pray that we, our hearts would respond in worship to the excellence of your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Hank Gathers uh, played collegiate basketball with the Loyola Marymount Lions from 1987 to 1990. In 1989, Hank Gathers was only the second player in the NCAA ever to lead the league in scoring and in rebounds. This guy was a force to be reckoned with on the court. His teams called him the guru of go, and at 6'7", 210 pounds, it seemed like nobody could stop Hank Gathers. On March the 4th, Loyola was playing the college at Portland and Gathers went up for a massive dunk that electrified the crowd. He came down, and 13 seconds later, he collapsed on the floor. A hush fell over the crowd. Loyola's medical team went out to see what was wrong, and after some time, the College at Portland's medical team went out as well. It turned out that the 23-year-old had stopped breathing, and he was dead. Hank Gathers had a rare heart condition that essentially caused his heart to fail when he exerted himself, and that was his life. Many of us, we hear those stories, and, and those are disturbing instances, to hear somebody just playing a sport they loved and then, and then suddenly gone. We can find comfort in knowing that that's a very rare condition for people. But Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, he tells us about our spiritual condition our spiritual heart condition before Christ. And y'all, it's not a rare condition that we have. This fatal heart defect that Paul is describing here in Ephesians 2.1 is so common. In fact, it's universal. 
What does he say? He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Up on the screen, we're going to build a before and after kind of contrasting list. And so hopefully you see that before. So what's the first thing that we see Paul telling us about our condition apart from Christ? The first thing he says is that we were dead. I was dead apart from Christ. What does this mean? Is he talking about a physical death? No, he's talking about a spiritual death. Um, This is somebody walking around that can look very put together, but they are spiritually dead. And this is a hard thing for us to to come to terms with because, church, I think sometimes we don't struggle with um, overemphasizing the deadness of people who aren't followers of Christ. We actually envy the world. We look at somebody who's an atheist, who has a nice wife, has a nice car, has, has a nice family, and we think they've got a pretty good life. And this is not the spiritual reality at all. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. And we allow uh, our circumstances, we put on the physical glasses, right? And we don't look at the spiritual realities as well. And so we've got to understand what is God saying? The spirituality is that we are dead in our sins apart from Christ. Um, Sometimes we can't always recognize the spiritual reality because it's not showing up physically in somebody's life. Um, But the Bible does teach that a spiritual reality will manifest itself physically later. Let me say that again. Spiritual realities will always manifest themselves physically later. What do I mean by that? In Genesis 2, 17, God said this, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This was the command of Adam and Eve in the garden. It was, hey, I've provided everything for you. I've created you. I love you. Go be fruitful and multiply and all these things, but you just can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was their one command. And God said, when you do that, you will surely die. And many of us know the story. When they ate the fruit, did they die? Physically, they didn't. Satan knew that. And he used that to tempt them and said, you won't die. He said, you'll become like God. And in that moment, y'all, they did not physically die, but in that moment, they spiritually died. And we see the fruit of that immediately, because when they eat the fruit, they see that they're naked and they're afraid, or ashamed, excuse me. (laughs) They blame themselves, and they hide from God. And then a number of years later, they physically die spiritually immediately. And we see the fruit of that in a smaller stage, and then it physically manifests itself later on. I want you to remember that when we look at the after. Spiritual death, sometimes, y'all, we don't see it, but it is there, and it is a universal condition for everyone who is apart from Christ. Before we were dead, second, before we were on Satan's side. This is what it says in verse 2, in which you were formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. What does he say here? He says, before Christ, we were walking in deadness. We were the walking dead before Christ. And we were going on a path or a course or a current, and that all of humanity is in this gravitational pull toward an end right, in the course of this world, according to who? The prince of the power of the air. Who who is this referring to in this passage? This is a reference to Satan. Satan is not a good master, and all of us that are on that path apart from Christ are going to a destructive end. This is what Jesus said in John 10.10 about Satan's plan for your life and for my life. 
The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What is Satan's plan for your life? What is the goal for you in, in, in Satan? It's for him to kill you, steal everything from you, and ultimately destroy you. This is what we have to look forward to apart from Christ. I don't say that, and we talk about Satan sometimes, and I feel like, honestly, we probably don't talk about Satan enough, right? We refer to things like brokenness or sin and use these generic terms, not recognizing the reality of spiritual warfare. And we don't talk about Satan as if, like, oh, he's the boogeyman, and if you're not good, he'll come get you. If you're apart from Christ, he's already got you. This is the default. Apart from Christ, this is my fate. This is my destiny, to go where everyone else goes, and that is destruction, that is death. Sometimes I think we look at our world and we see, the, we see the sin, we see the spiritual warfare, and we think, well, God, maybe he's just gonna kind of excuse all of it. Maybe he'll just excuse it because everybody else is headed that way, and maybe God will, will somehow uh, just kind of sweep it under the rug because there's so many people who are doing it, and y'all, the, the testimony of scripture is there's not safety in numbers. There's no safety in numbers when it comes to Christ. Forsaking the course of the world and following a narrow path that is life in Christ. Before Christ, we were dead. We were on Satan's side. And third, we were just sinning. We were living in sin. Among them, verse 3, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. It's so interesting that he describes us as spiritually dead in verse 1, and then in verse 3, he actually used the word live. So what was the totality of our life in spiritual death? What were we living for? We were living for the lusts of our flesh. We were doing whatever felt good. Church, this is bondage of the will. This is saying that I exist to serve myself. I've lived here. And you begin to hate yourself because you chase after things that never satisfy. And all that you have you don't have peace, you don't have joy, you don't have anything else, you just have the consequences of your actions. This is a horrible condition for humanity and it is a perversion of what God put us on this planet to do. In Genesis 1, 27 and 28, God told us why he created us, why he created humanity. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So why did God create humanity? He created us to be in his image, to reflect his character in the world and to rule this world. God created humanity to rule. And then after the fall in Genesis 4, verse 7, we see the word rule used again in a different context. And God said this to Cain, Genesis 4, 7, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God created us to rule sin in the world, and the call of God is for us to learn how to rule over sin. How did Cain do in that regard? Did he rule over it, or did he succumb to it? And the whole Testament is pointing to Redeemer, 
the one who defeated sin and death for us. Cain couldn't rule over it. I can't rule over it. It has devoured us, and only Christ is the one who successfully has defeated sin and death. But the Bible's clear. When it comes to lust and sinful desires, it is either eat or be eaten, rule or be ruled. And there's only one person who has stood the test and passed when it comes to living in the lusts of the flesh. Last thing I want to say on the before, um, last one, we were dead. We were on Satan's side. We were sinning. And the last one is that we were children of wrath. This is our identity apart from Christ, that a holy God created us. We failed his standard. And I have a target on me from a holy God, and that is justified because of what I have done. If I'm apart from Christ, I deserve the full wrath of God, and I deserve the very worst that God has for me. If you look on the screen, um, what's in this kind of the center of the screen? Cross. cross. I was making this slide, and I guess you can tell us like the before, and then the cross, and then the after. I was like, well, that worked out well. Can we just light up the cross, Nick, you got us? This is the thing that connects us from the before to the after, church, the cross. There was one person who came to earth and he fulfilled all the things that I fell short in. And he died on a cross for us. And 2 Corinthians 5.22 says that he became my sin, that on that cross, he took my before. He took my default. He took my identity as a child of wrath before God and he paid for that wrath. And because of the cross, we can start to paint a picture of the after, of what, who we are in Christ as responding to him in faith. And y'all, verse four of Ephesians two is a big deal. I'm so glad Ephesians two does not end with verse three. Verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. The work of Christ is what connects us and gives us the opportunity to say we can have a happy ending to this story, that there can be resolution to this story for the nature of humanity. First thing that we see in the after picture and that's that we've been made alive. We've been made alive. I didn't need a makeover. I didn't need some sort of improvement. I needed to be recreated because what was my condition? I was dead. I was a slave and I was in bondage and Christ made us alive. I was just trying to think, what is spiritual life? We talked a little bit about spiritual death already, but what, what really is spiritual life? Just three things, if you want to jot these down that I was thinking about this week. Spiritual life is freedom. It's the ability to live a life that is pleasing to the Father, right? To break that cycle of always failing him and always coming to him full of condemnation and the guilt. Spiritual life, being made right in Christ is to have the righteousness of Christ placed in our life and to have freedom. To say, I can actually please God with my story. Not separating the before. The before is always going to be there, but somehow we can redeem the situation because God can come in and do a new work. And for God to make us alive, it is to free us. The second one that we see, uh, spiritual uh, life is freedom, but it's also peace with God. This is what Romans 5 says, that because I'm a child of wrath, I deserve the wrath of God. I'm living in a world as creation, and I'm in a broken relationship with creator. And that's a big deal. 
Because of faith in Christ, Romans 5 says, we have peace with God being justified by faith. The last one that I think is so important is that spiritual life is to know God, is to be in relationship with him. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 17. He says, this is eternal life, to know you. Because I've been made alive in Christ, I have an opportunity to, to live a free life. I have an opportunity to um, know Christ and have an opportunity to have peace with God. That song that we sang first, y'all, buckle up because we're going to sing it a lot. It was finished upon that cross. Absolutely love the lyrics of this song. Death was once my great opponent. Fear once had a hold on me, but the son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed, free from every plan of darkness, free to live and free to love. Death is dead. Christ is risen. It was finished upon that cross. I can be made alive because of the work of Christ. He defeated our greatest enemy. The second thing that we see before we were dead, now we're alive, before we were on Satan's side, and now we are in Christ. To be made alive is to be in Christ, for there is no spiritual life apart from him. And before Christ, I was in, a, in the wrong kingdom. I was on the wrong side. I was worse than a Nazi. I was worse than a terrorist before Christ because I was an enemy of the creator. In Colossians 1, 13 through 14, it tells us that in the gospel, I have been transferred to a new kingdom for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I have a new citizenship in heaven. And this citizenship in Christ should be the primary marking of my identity. Church, I think that's important for us to recognize. I am in his kingdom first. I'm second, an American. Patriotism for America and this nation is subservient to patriotism and devotion to the kingdom of God. Because if the apostles had been patriotic toward Rome, would we have the gospel? It wouldn't. I'm in a new kingdom, and I'm not talking about going to a new nation or, or hop in the pond. We're in the kingdom of God. And in his kingdom, we know our end. John 10.10 10 said that the thief, Satan, came to kill, steal, and destroy. This was the uh, conclusion of the matter um, for us being in the kingdom of Satan. But what did Christ come to give us? What do we have to look forward to now that we are in his kingdom? John 10.10, 10, to have life and have it abundantly. This is what we have to look forward to in Christ. Church, we've been made alive. We are in Christ. Thirdly, we're now righteous. Before we were sinning, that's what marked our life. Our life was about our sin. Now our life is marked by righteousness. Our righteousness? No. Christ's righteousness. I want you to look with me at verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. You say, Liam, I don't see righteousness in this passage. I don't, I don't see that word. How can you say that this passage is talking about righteousness? He's telling us that we are made righteous in verse 6. What he's saying is we've been made alive in Christ, and that means that we partake with him in his resurrection and his ascension. Every act and every ministry of Christ is so important, and that includes incarnation, perfect obedience, atonement, resurrection, ascension, and return. When we talk about Jesus, we talk about the guy who died on the cross for our sins and rose again. And a lot of times, it's like bonus points if you say that he rose again. But 
every work of Christ is so important for my identity as a believer. We talk a lot about death and resurrection, but I want to talk just for a minute about what it means to be seated with Christ, to take part with him in his ascension. J.T. English has referred to the ascension as the forgotten act of Christ, but it is so important for each one of us. The ascension actually tells us a lot about why we can trust in Jesus' resurrection. For example, Jesus wasn't the only guy to rise from the dead, right? Lazarus rose from the dead. So why am I a Christian and not a Lazarusian? Thank you. I, I prepared that. Why am I a Christian and not a Lazarusian? Because of the nature of their resurrection. I didn't come up with this, but y'all, it's, it's brilliant. Lazarus was raised to, and restored to what we are. Christ was raised and made into what we will be. When Lazarus was a normal guy. He dies, God raises him from the grave, and he was still a normal guy. And he died again. But Jesus, even before he died, he wasn't a normal guy. He was the eternal son in trying relationship with the Father. He lived a perfect life. He died, and he resurrected in a glorified body. What does that mean? That means that Jesus rose from the grave heaven ready. And the Jesus that appeared to the apostles 2,000 years ago, his heart has never stopped beating. He didn't die again. He just went back into heaven with the Father. Jesus was raised in a completely different way, a way that exempted him, that proved that he had really defeated death because he was raised in a glorified body. And when Jesus went back to the Father, this is so important, the Father accepted him. The Father had seen everything he did on earth, and he said, yes, totally 100% righteous. Let me just tell you a couple places in scripture. We're told how that moment that the Son and the Father came back together. Philippians 2.9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14, the son of man prophecy. Prophet Daniel saw this moment happen. He said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations, all peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. The father accepted the work of the son and gave him the kingdom. All authority has been given to Christ. Verse six, y'all, says that I have been seated with Christ that his seat and right standing next to the Father is mine because I am in him in his resurrection and his ascension. Church, just very practical application for us, tying the ascension to your life. You can never go anywhere in your life that Jesus hasn't gone. You can never go anywhere that Jesus hasn't already gone. Tomorrow you wake up and there is a trial in front of you, a mountain that you feel like you cannot walk through. Jesus has already been tempted. He has already walked through trials and he knows what you are experiencing. He's already been through the trial. Maybe tomorrow you will be on your deathbed. Jesus has already been there. He's already tasted death. 
Even in that moment, you can be in Christ. Many of us might find a little bit of fear of standing before God one day. And really, how is that going to play out? Jesus has already been there. And if you are in Christ, you cannot go anywhere that he's already, that he hasn't gone. He's already been there. He already knows. He knows what we're going through. He is a good prophet, priest, and king. The last one in our after is that we have gone from children of wrath, children of grace. Verse seven, so in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This verse is in the future. So that in the ages to come, looking forward and he says because I'm in Christ because I've been made alive with him and raised up with him and seated with him I have gone from a child of wrath deserving God's worst to be a child of grace who will receive God's best and church he's saying that there is more grace and there's more realization of this salvation to come we talk about this as glorification as realizing physically the glorified body and the glorified nature in Christ. I said earlier that a spiritual reality does not manifest itself spirit or physically until later. Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, but they didn't die physically until later. Church, if you are in Christ, you have taken and eaten of the body and the blood, and there's more to come. Your spiritual reality has changed. You were made alive in that instant. You were secured with the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in your life, but, and there is more to come because the physical manifestation of your spiritual status will be realized when Christ returns and we will be made like him. It's incredible what he has done for us. Romans chapter eight. Paul explains the gospel. Seems like every time we read Paul's letters, that's what he's doing. He's explaining to us the power of the gospel. And it's almost like he just, you can just imagine him writing Romans 8 and then just sitting back and be like, man, our God is so awesome. This is what he says in Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Verse 38 and 39, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, things present, things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we've got our before and after picture. Is it still up there? What does this do for us? Three things, three applications, church. We need to find humility in the before and the after. Both of these columns should produce incredible humility in our lives. I'm going to ask the band if they'll come up. We're about to sing a song, and it does a beautiful job of uh, communicating the before. We're singing, thank you, Jesus, for the blood. And it says, I was a wretch. I remember who I was. And we've got to remember the before to say, this is who I was apart from Christ. And, and this transforms the way we interact with people who let us down in our lives and how we approach people with forgiveness to remember, I, except for an act of Christ, I'd be exactly where they were and where they are. We find humility in the before, but we also find humility in the after to recognize I'm alive. I'm in Christ. I'm righteous. I'm a child of grace. That is not my work. 
as a work of God. Church, both the before and the after should produce humility. Find humility in the before and the after. Number two, let your humility produce worship. We worship because he worked. Amen? We don't work. He's done it all. And so we respond in worship. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we're going to talk about it next week. But within from that heart of worship, then we begin to work. Amen? We're not saved by our works. We are, receive him in faith. We, we uh, are made alive. And then we worship him for what he's done. And then we go out in the world and say, God, how can I please you with my life? As a thank you. We need to let our humility produce worship. And at some point, y'all, our worship has got to translate into obedience. I heard a pastor say one time, we've got to let our affection for Christ translate into allegiance. Forsaking sin is a battle, church, that we face every day. Call to stand firm and say, if this God is so great, I'm going to give him everything. He's worthy of my worship. And he's worthy of what I do tomorrow. Church, we're called to be humble. Called to worship him. And we are called to be obedient to him. So church, we just want to take this time to to fix our eyes on Christ. Church, that's the best thing you can do in any situation. Fix your eyes on Christ. Good times, bad times, boring times, busy times. Best thing we can do is to look to him. Church, the rules don't change. Forsake sin. Cling to the Father this week. If you weren't and I wasn't, we should have been doing it last week. Amen. I just want you to take this time to respond to the Father, to sing to him. Versus in our hearts on his power. His power is better than mine. And he's the one we need. I've asked Madison if she'll pray for us. She's going to do that for us. And then we'll sing. Let's pray, guys.